Once again to the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. My name is Ben Stone. Today is Friday, January 18th, 2013, and this is podcast number 262. Uh, in the beginning of the podcast today, uh, well, let's put it this way. I appeared on Adam versus the Man, a very popular show, and uh, of course Adam Kokesh was not on that night. It was being um, hosted instead by Amanda Billyrock and Eddie Free with Michael Heiss and Charlie Freebeard. So uh, so I, they invited me on the show, and I, uh, I think I was on about 10 minutes. So what I've done, I peeled the audio off from that, uh, from that show, and I've got it here. I'll play it for you. Like I say, it's about 10 minutes long. The, the audio is on and off. It's kind of parts are good, parts are a little hard to hear, but um, I think you can kind of get an idea of, of what was going on on there. And uh, I'm doing this without Adam Kokesh's permission and without even letting him know that I'm doing it. So, you know, it's a kind of pirated <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, I don't think Adam is going to try to take any legal action if I steal his intellectual property from him. So I don't have a lot of fear of that taking place. Anyway, so without further ado, uh, here is my appearance on uh, Adam versus the Man with Amanda Billy Rock and Eddie Free. Badquake.com. Oh my I'm really goodness. excited. I, I've been listening to Ben for uh, for you know several months. Actually, just just before Porcupine Festival this last year, I, I had I was turned on to to to, uh, to Ben's podcast. It was recommended to me uh, by the Freedom Fiends, and and I guess the first show I heard was uh, he was kind of talking about a little bit of conspiracy stuff, some things that he did believe in, some things he didn't. But but uh, I, that's why I recommended him, Amanda, because he's just. Uh, he, he, he's amazing. He's very wise, and I'm really happy to have him on. Gorgeous! Oh my goodness, there he is. He looks like a mountain man. You look like a mountain <laughs> man. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And you're looking very nice t- this evening. And the uh, wonderful looking beards I see. That's that's great to see beards in the room. There are there are three men in the room, and every single one of them is bearded. I've been working on bearded. this for about a month. Bearded, bearded. Okay, so is it okay if I call you Ben? Sure. Stone, is Ben's that okay? Fine. Can I call you that? Okay, yeah. so your real name is Ben, but you go by the Bad Quaker. What does this mean? Help me. Well, uh, the, the the quick answer is that um, a good Quaker is a lot of things. A good Quaker is simple. A good Quaker is honest. But uh, one of the things Quakers are known for is their pacifism. A good Quaker is pacifist. Um, but I'm not a pacifist. I, I try to be as, as good of a Quaker as I can, but when it comes to the le- to the area of pacifism, uh, I, I'm not. I'm fanatically self-defense and defense of my own property and the property of anyone else who would like for me to defend it for them, including my family. 
So now are you actually a Quaker? Like that is that is what you are for real? Correct. Oh, he actually is a Quaker. That's right. That's well, super look, awesome. Ben, haven't you married couples before? Is that correct? I've done one. I've done one wedding. I am a uh, uh, an actual minister and uh, have been for some while, some time now. That's killer. Okay, so oh, this I had to ask. Um, Eddie says that you yourself don't believe that the Federal Reserve should be ended. Is that true? Uh, sort of. Um, I think the market is the answer. I think if Congress takes action and eliminates the Federal Reserve, like everybody, you know, in the Fed, in the Fed, if, if, if the government does your bidding for you and the government takes an, an action, uh, they're going to mess it up. They mess up everything they do. What they'll probably do... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry. They made the Fed. They made the Fed. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so they're not going to, you know, why would, uh, why would the crooks that are currently ripping us off that created this system that have this whole scheme, why would they just suddenly go, oh, wow, you know what? We should be honest. They're not going to do that. If they have, if they voluntarily end the Fed, they will bring about something worse than the Fed. So the market is the answer. The market can kill the Fed. The market will kill the Fed. It's just a matter of uh, not making yourself the government or not trying to force the government to do your bidding for you. I, totally I like agree. this guy. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think the market is the answer. And when I hear end the Fed, what comes to my mind is an idea. Like let's let's end central control of money. Let's end. People telling us uh, what the value of money is arbitrarily and, and things like that, and having the market of free, uh, the free market take place of money instead of centralized control. So I would agree. We don't need legislation to end the Fed. We need this spread of ideas. Anarchy Night was a great night to bring on Ben Stone. So now, Ben, not only do you have BadQuaker.com, you also have a podcast. What do you guys talk about? Um, it varies pretty pretty dramatically. We have uh, guests from everybody from people like uh, you know on the real intellectual side like uh, Bob Higgs and and really respected Bob professors. professors of, I dig that guy. Yeah, he's great. Um, people like that, you know, uh, Bob Murphy, um, people like that, and then we have uh, like I had Max Abraham Abramson on uh, just the other day. Talking about his confrontation with the police up in uh, in New Hampshire uh, and gun you know gun issues and that kind of thing. So we talk about uh, a real wide variety of stuff. We try to focus on having liberty as our mission and uh, and really digging into the zero aggression principle or the non aggression principle and uh, and history. I'm fascinated by history, so so we do uh, bump into history as much as possible. Very good. Do we have any? Questions for Ben from Twitter or from the chat, quite possibly. So I know that I do in the interim. I want to know your answer to the question of the day, Ben Stone, Bad Quaker. What does anarchy mean to you? I, I would divide that into two, uh, two, two answers. One would be a technical and one would be a personal. The, most people say anarchy, well, that means without law, without rule, without law. But that's not, you know, I... I uh, I pat myself on the back. I've had a little bit of Greek and I've had a little bit of Latin and I and I failed both miserably. Oh, but... I was going to pat you on the back, but then you said you were a failure. Never mind. Continue. <laughs> um, but if you actually analyze the words carefully in Greek, it's not anti, uh, anti-archy. It's anarchy. So it's self-rule 
not anti-rule. And it's not really rule. Archie uh, is like a hierarchy or a you can coordinate books in a uh, in in hierarchies or you can coordinate shelves in hierarchies. So it really talks about order, uh, not so much like law or rule. So really, it's self-ordered. We're self-ordered. So that's the technical way that I look at it. Uh, Anna, like animated or, um, you know, animation. Anyway, um, and then the personal way that I look at anarchy, I, I use this example pretty frequently. We have in my family a yearly um, um, family reunion in the hills of eastern Kentucky. And when we do I'm this, we have – I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just being snarky. Please continue. He's being a smart ass oh. <laughs> I didn't even hear it. Um, we, but we have a, a family reunion in the hills of Kentucky every year. And uh, we're back there. We're away from everybody. We're not really within range, a reasonable range of having a cop drive to us or an ambulance or anything like that. And, and the, the real wide diversity of maybe 50 to 100 people showing up, some are super religious, some are completely not religious, some drink, some are, you know, uh, hardcore, uh, teetotaling Baptists, uh, and, and there's no real plan, and yet food shows up, and people get together, and nobody shoots each other, and, you know, it's good every year. Wait a minute. You mean that you guys have guns, but you don't shoot each other in the heat of an argument? What? And, and, and some have guns, and some don't, and some carry open, and some don't, and some are licensed, and some are not. Wow, how could such anarchy take place without bloodshed and animal sacrifices? <laughs> Cannot even believe this. So I heard from a little bird that you, Ben Stone, will be speaking at the Liberty Forum that the Free State Project is having. Is this true? That is true. I'll be uh, I'll be one of the speakers at the Liberty Forum, and uh, I, I have a shot. I don't know if, if Carla was st is still listening, but I have a shot at the... Uh, uh, at, at Porkfest because I they had this little straw poll vote on um, um, Facebook and I came in seventh place. I was up there with people like Penn Jillette and Ron Paul and stuff. It was crazy. Whoa, go you. you! You've just really this past year, Ben. You've really just skyrocketed on popularity. Um, you know, I, I think just like six months ago, I'd mention your name and and you know pe several people wouldn't know who you were, and now you know a lot of people in my circles. And, and, and expanding beyond that, uh, more and more people are, are getting turned on to your pod podcast. Yeah, uh, we're we've actually I think we've been on the air like something like twenty twenty one or twenty two months, and we've had a steady, consistent growth every single month with uh, you know record uh, record increases in listenership every single month. I I think right now we have something like about ten thousand listeners, but. I'm not exactly sure. It's hard to tell. Some of the some of the numbers are fuzzy, but that's the best guess I can come up with. It has been super exciting having my first real Quaker mountain man, you know, in the studio on the show. And um, where can people find you, Ben? How do they find your site and how do they find your podcast? Well, uh, I'm in a few locations as far as the podcast, iTunes, uh, as badquaker.com, spelled D-O-T-C-O-M. And, uh, you know, on the uh, Liberty Radio Network with a lot of the other folks over there. Um, the website is badquaker.com, you know, just 
B-A-D-Q-U-A-K-E-R.com. And we're on Facebook, badquaker.com, spelled D-O-T-C-O-M. And we have a forum. If you go to badquaker.com and you look around on the, up in the upper right-hand side, you'll see a button for the forum. You can jump on there. We have, I don't know, something like 150, 170 members, something like that. It, it's growing pretty regularly. Fab. That's, that's awesome. Well, well, I'll definitely have to check it out because me and the rest of the chat agree you have by far the coolest radio voice. <laughs> the coolest radio voice ever. Very good. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Have a, have a smashing night, Ben Stone, and uh, maybe we can talk in the future. I will. Thank you very much. There's a bar directly behind me, and I'm going there as soon as I turn this After camera party, off. After Ben Stone's oh, place. Good. Awesome. You really are a bad Quaker. Awesome. Super Thanks. awesome. Yeah. You know what? I'm feeling perhaps a little bit. Okay, uh, so I did have a lot of fun on the uh, on the show with uh, Amanda and Eddie and and Michael. You didn't see. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. You couldn't see it at all. You're just hearing uh, audio. <laughs> um, Charlie Freebeard is kind of running the um, the show from uh, behind the scenes. So I don't think we heard his voice in that clip, and uh, he wasn't. He's he's off camera. So, uh, but I'll I'll try to. I don't think the link is up yet for the actual uh, video from that. But I'll I'll keep my eye open on YouTube, and if they post the video for that, I'll post a link over to it. And if it doesn't happen by the time I get this uh, podcast uh, produced, um, what I'll probably do then is I'll check with the uh, I'll check back and forth on Adam's uh, YouTube uh, location. And when they finally post it, I'm assuming they will. When they finally post it, I'll uh, I'll put a link to it in the Bad Quaker uh, forum, and uh, so so people can get to it there. And I should apologize to the folks at the forum. You know, ever since we've been on the road now since uh, the last part of December, and I really haven't had the time to spend very much time at all on the forum, and I haven't had time to you know follow up on my emails. I'm really backed up on emails, so. You know, sorry about that. It's just uh, we're we're trying this out, this on the road thing, and we're seeing where our strengths th- strengths and our weaknesses are, and we're seeing if we can maybe figure out a way to do this full time, just stay on the road and podcast from different locations and so forth. We're considering right now. We're in South Alabama, and we're considering coming up through Alabama and maybe past the in- the Mises Institute. I'm not sure if we're actually going to do that or not, but. Uh, but we're thinking about that. Now, uh, one thing that I wanted to talk about today on the podcast, um, I've kind of ignored this whole, you know, Obama gun grab thing. I know Kai and I talked about it a little bit. We didn't really go into depth on it on, on our uh, uh, Skyped podcast that we did the other day. But I, I haven't really got into it in detail. I, I but I had this thought that that was in my mind. You know, there's a lot of people that are very worried right now. A lot of gun owners that are very very concerned about what Obama might do and what you know this new executive order that he he brings out. And, and again, I try not to make my podcasts um, real um, time sensitive, real uh, you know uh, uh, dependent upon the news because I do rerun my podcasts. So I, I, I want to try to make, make my podcasts uh, more um, hmm, less time-sensitive and more topical-sensitive. But I, but I did want to touch this a little bit because I had the thought the other day that 
You know, I listened to Obama's little talk. I didn't listen to the whole thing, but I, enough of it to get the gist. Gist or jest? But anyway, um, I, but I listened to Obama's talk, some of it, and I, I came to the conclusion that, you know, he's he's kind of, it's kind of like he's talking a foot-long sub, but what he's really going to settle for is a slice of cucumber on a Melba toast. There's a lot of talk in this. But I don't think uh, he's really going to have a whole lot of teeth behind his um, so-called gun grab that everyone is expecting. I don't think it's going to be that. I think it's going to be an excuse for you know uh, several new agencies to be created, and it's going to be an excuse to have on the laws some uh, on the books rather some some stupid laws that they can pull out at particular times when they've already got somebody for eight or nine other charges and they throw two or three more charges on them. I don't think it's going to be a thing that's going to be monumental like like both the left and the right uh, want us to believe right now. Um, Gary North, actually, over at uh, LewRockwell.com, Gary North made the statement that uh, Obama has shot himself in the foot. And I like Gary North's writings a lot, but I, I think I'm going to disagree with Gary on this one. I think, um, I, you know, I really think this is all a show. I don't think Obama really believes he's going to get through the level of, um, uh, you know, of, of oppression that he's attempting to put through. Uh, I think instead... He's going to do exactly what the liberals have done right along, and that is, uh, you know, they run out way out into the field, and then as soon as there's opposition, they pull back, but they never pull all the way back. And the Republicans are going to charge out to stop them. They're going to, the Republicans are going to be the heroes. Here they come to save the day. And they're going to rush out to stop the evil Democrats from stealing your guns. And they're going to drive the Democrats backwards on the field, but not quite back to the original position. And this is the game they play. You know, um, the, the, the Democrats will run out with something really crazy and the Republicans will uh, make a big fuss and push them back, but they'll settle. The Republicans like to settle. The Republicans like to compromise. Um, let's see, how many Republicans can we think of in the last hundred years that don't, re that don't want to compromise? Uh, one, Ron Paul, and he's out. So, you know, it's a hallmark of Republicans to compromise, to storm around, to wave their sword in the air, and then when the, when the, when the rubber really meets the road, they compromise. They always have, and that's what they do. So, so that's what's going to happen. They're gonna, the Democrats are going to rush out with as much gun control as they can possibly get away with, and, uh, and the Republicans are going to stand strong, and then in the end they'll fold, and there will be slightly stronger gun laws than there currently are, and that will be the end of it. And, and, and it will be, you know, it's the, what's the old phrase? It's the death by a million cuts or death by a thousand cuts or whatever. That's what we're talking about here. They're not going to march out and start, you know, going door to door. The manpower alone to do something like that would be phenomenal. I would love to see that. Um, in many ways, I would love to see that because that would, I mean, let's, you know, I'm the kind of person who says, well, okay, I've got this Band-Aid and I need to get rid of it, then take it off. Don't sit there and torture yourself. 
take the Band-Aid off. I get ready to get into a swimming pool. I don't go and like warm my feet into it and get used to it. I jump in. That's what I do. Uh, you know, same way um, back in the olden days when I used to be young and rubbery and, and surfed. I wouldn't kind of go and get ready for the water and get warm. No, I just run out there and get into it. It didn't matter how warm or cold it was. That was my method. And that's kind of the way I tend to feel with gun control. It's It's like... Really, you guys really want them? Do you really want them? Then come on. Let's get this done. Let's just dance. Let's, let's stop fiddling around and let's dance. But they're not going to do that because they know. The, 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 the most radical of the gun grabbers, they know that if they do that, they lose. They lose the whole pot of gold. They lose everything. The entire... Um, you know, if the if the U.S. government literally went out and started trying to take guns using, especially if they tried to use U.N. troops, which I don't think, you know, American troops, I don't think they would do it. Um, some police forces would be more than happy to comply with that kind of a thing, but there are a lot of sheriff's departments that wouldn't. So, you know, you're you're actually talking about the government in D.C., openly declaring war on the American people. And they're not that dumb. They're not going to do that. You're not going to have, you know, a, a few thousand, a little handful of people, a few thousand people coming up against um, maybe a hundred million people who don't care. That's in the U.S. There's probably a hundred million people that don't care. There's probably 60 or 70, maybe 80 million Americans who would say, yes, take those evil guns. But there's going to be 100 to 150 million Americans that are going to go, no, you're not taking it. You're not doing that. It's not going to happen. And and the people in Washington, as dumb as they may be, they're not so stupid that they would take on a challenge like that. Because above and beyond however dumb they may be in Washington, um, the the real thing that they are is cowards. They're, they're not going to do that. Okay, um, so that's my rant and my rave about current news. I'll, I'll get back on some of this stuff in just a minute and maybe talk about some of the methods that the Democrats and Republicans use over the years. But stick with me. I'll be right back uh, after the commercial. Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom is a collection of courses on history and Austrian economics. There are video and audio files you can download, you can participate in the discussion boards, and there are live sessions with Tom Woods and the other educators. Join Tom and his team and they'll equip you with one of the very best tools the Liberty Movement has to offer, knowledge. And you can get all this for just $99 a year. Go to badquaker.com, click on the banner for Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom, and by using this link, you'll let Tom know that I sent you and you'll help badquaker.com. Thank you. Do you have an Amazon account? If you don't, let me encourage you to set one up. Setting up an account is free and it's easy, and Amazon has great prices, and in most cases you can avoid paying sales tax. Plus, if you're careful and lump your purchases together, you can get free shipping. And Amazon has almost anything you can think of, plus it's safer and cheaper than driving all over town. When you buy stuff, if you follow the Amazon link at badquaker.com, Amazon will give Bad Quaker a tiny portion of the purchase. It won't cost you any extra, but you'll be supporting this podcast. Thank you. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the break. Uh, now, I, I want to get back on this a little bit because even though, like I said, I don't like to do, I don't like to hold, do a whole podcast on current events. Uh, I like to have the podcasts be a little bit more useful so that a year from now, the, the, you know, they can still have some meaning. It's not going to be real time sensitive. So I want to kind of get take this whole current gun situation 
and kind of step back away from it a little bit and look at it more in a historical perspective. Um, really, what you see here is a, a, an attempt, at least, whether it's going to be successful or not, only time will tell. But what we're looking at is an attempt to bring upon a slow cultural shift in the way, in the way Americans think about guns. And this is, uh, this is a, a long process. It's generational. It's not going to happen in, uh, you know, just because, you, because America elected one idiot uh, who wants to grab guns. It's not going to happen like that. They're not going to just, you know, they're not going to just sign a treaty with the U.N. and bring in blue helmets and just do this. They're not going to do that. That is exactly what the right wing would love to happen. And like I said a second ago, you know, I, I prefer just let's get a thing done. Let's go for it right now. But that's not what they're going to do. They need this slow cultural shift. Um, and, and one of them revealed the plan. I can't remember which, which one of these clowns said it. But he said, we need to do this like, like it's been done with smoking. Where, you know, uh, if you look at some of the old movies from the, from the 30s and the 40s and even the 50s and 60s, uh, as a matter of fact, I was watching, uh, we're here in the motorhome going from campground to campground. And, um, you know, so we put up the antenna and see what kind of local TV is available. And they have uh, one of these local stations that seems to be fairly prevalent throughout the, well, I shouldn't say local, it's uh, some kind of a network that's sold to local stations. But anyway, um, they, they play a lot of the old TV shows from the 50s and 60s and 70s on, on this show. And so one of, the, um, one of the shows that was playing on this as we were setting up the, the, um, uh, the television and the antenna and all this is the old show um, Bewitched, where the, you know, the, well, anyway. Um, and in the scene, it didn't actually show anyone smoking, but um but it was like a dinner party going on at the at the at the end of the dinner party one of the characters says to her husband she says well i have to go empty the ashtrays because they just had a dinner party therefore the ashtrays are full and and i thought back you know i remembered it was like memories from the 60s come flooding into my mind and i remembered you know that every house uh, literally would have five, ten, fifteen ashtrays scattered throughout the house. Every house did. Even if you didn't smoke, you had ashtrays in your house. And, um, and when you would have, you know, four, six, eight people over to your house, emptying ashtrays was a standard routine part of any kind of dinner party uh, that the host or hostess or both would would have to engage in they would they would have to basically stop doing everything they were doing and make rounds and empty ashtrays because uh smoking was so prevalent about the only place in american society where smoking was frowned upon was actually in elevators or, um, you know, right where fuel for gasoline or whatever was being dispensed. That was about the only places that in American culture uh, smoking was not, was frowned upon. But there, but there was a slow cultural shift away from that. There was, um, you know, a lot of government, if you, you, you want to concede this position and say, well, you know, government has done something. Well, I don't know if it's all government or if it was just a generally a, a maturing of society or, a you know, um, I think a lot of the fascination with smoking came 
due directly to the the government's supporting of the tobacco industry during World War One and World War Two, and the the high quantity of free cigarettes that were given out by the government during those two time frames, and also uh, that. Um, well, anyway, I, I didn't really want to go off into that whole topic. My my point was that that is exactly the plan that these uh, that these gun grabbers have. They want to come at this slow, generationally. They're right now they're real heavily in public schools. They're telling children to write essays. Write essays. If you were going to write to the president of the United States and tell him how to keep these horrible school shootings from taking place and they're they're using these fear-mongering tactics with little children brainwashing these little children into getting them to write essays with their own words their own hands their own their own thoughts and and putting into these essays the um you know, the thoughts that the teachers are trying to get them to learn, which is anti-gun, which is people who own guns are mentally unstable. And, and all of these, you know, these basic underlying uh, fallacies that are being taught to the children in the public schools. Well, that, the liberals believe, that is how the game is won. And I, and I think, you know, if I was evil, a liberal... That's exactly how I would plan it out. This is a this is a process that makes sense. You win the hearts of the children slowly, generationally. The 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 um, not so much the liberals, but uh, the progressives, which the liberals have come from the progressive movement. The progressives understood this in the late 1800s. They knew they weren't going to get you know government health care and welfare for the poor and the and the elderly and the, uh, the the ill. They knew they wouldn't get these things right off the bat. They knew they couldn't get all of society depending on government. They they knew they couldn't do that in one generation. Um, things like that were introduced in Europe within one or two generations. But these people knew that uh, you read their writings, the progressive writings and the progressive speeches from the late 1800s, and they understood, um, you know, guys like uh, Dewey and, um, oh, I can't, Shaw, I can't remember some of the others, but, but if you read their, their writings and listen to their speeches, they understood this was going to be a generational thing and that it would take a long period of time. And they did. They've been working on this for a while. You know, uh, I've talked about before how one generation of teachers um, teaches a generation of students, and they learn these um, these very progressive ideas. And maybe not all of them, but at least a third of the students come out of uh, public schools totally buying the progressive storyline. And each generation that does that the the uh, this progressive um, mentality becomes stronger and stronger and stronger so so they're patient they're playing this smart from their point of view they're doing this the right way they know better than, than to confront the uh, the more traditional aspects of american belief they know better than to confront those things like like gun ownership and property ownership and so forth they know better than to confront those things outright so they do these things slowly. So, for example, you know, you think about uh, gun rights. Well, like I say all the time, there's no such thing as gun rights. There's property rights. So it comes on slow. If they can tax you 
for your real estate property that you own and you have to pay a quit rent, which nowadays we call that a, a property tax, you have to pay that. Otherwise, you lose your real estate. Well, then you never really owned your real estate. Okay, so now there's no real property in real estate. You can't own land in the U.S., because you constantly have to pay a quit rent for it. Okay, now that was accepted. That became accepted. And then they said, well, we have to have eminent domain because if we need to dig a canal or if we need to put through a railroad, it's for the public good. So we have to have eminent domain laws. And so they put that through. Now, all of a sudden, this backs up the idea that you don't own your real estate property. So so no American actually owns real estate property. And now there was a, a traditional American belief in homesteading. A human could go out where no other people uh, actively owned property, property, and you could stake it out, you could build a house there, you could begin to improve the property, and it was yours. Well, the government had to slowly chip that away until it didn't exist anymore. And, and these these things even predate the progressive movement itself because it's it's in the depths of statism. It's it's part of this uh, this greater beast that we're fighting. So as the progressives came in, and again, you know, it was a little thing at a time. Well, we we have to preserve um, nature uh, so that future generations will have it. We got to take care of those future generations. So we're going to set up the park service. Well, does the park service really preserve nature, or do they uh, uh, do they bring in the tragedy of the commons? And uh, and the same thing with the forestry service. Well, we have to, you know, we have uh, forests are endangered, so we have to bring in the forestry service and save them from forest fires and abuse and all these other things. But we're we're moving away from true property ownership. And when you move away from property ownership, you move towards the tragedy of the commons. Well, then, so now we have more problems with public lands, with companies abusing public lands and so forth and pollution and over-harvesting of the forests and all these different things, uh, too much range cattle and all these things become a problem because of the tragedy of the commons. So what's the solution? The progressives offer more government regulations and more government oversight. And that's how they do. The, the government gives you a problem, forces a problem upon you. A generation gets used to the government managing that problem. Then the problem comes to a head and the government can't manage it anymore and says, you know what we need to do is have more government here. And that's what they do. Well, that's the process with the gun grabbing. They're not going to do this in one generation. Um, you know, if you go back and you think about um, uh, how gun control started in the U.S., and I think most Republicans especially, they pat themselves on the back because they think, well, the Republican Party is the party that stands for gun rights. Okay, again, no such thing as gun rights. There's nothing in nature that provides you a right to a gun. You have a right to property and you have a right to defend yourself. But there's nothing magical about a gun that makes it any different than any other property. You give up your right to have your car searched by a cop because his dog sniffed your bumper. And you've given up your right to property. So uh, so if you, if you want to whine to me about uh, losing your rights to guns... Well, you gave up your rights to guns when you accepted the idea that a dog can sniff your bumper and now a cop can search your car just based on that. And if he finds you know, any particular substance that happens to be banned by the government, they can take your car. That's the situation we sit in right now today. 
and the right wing has given us that as much as the left wing has. So when so when the the, the Republican or the conservative or the right wing person starts to tell you about defending their guns, just remember their war on drugs authorized the government to take away property. And guns are only property. So uh, I wanted to get to this first, though. You know, gun uh, grabs in the U.S. were invented by Republicans, not by Democrats. And I'm not saying this to in any way defend the Democrats. Uh, we're talking about two breeds of the same kind of thieves. That's all they are. The Democrats and the Republicans are just thieves with different colored masks. That is all they are. But the Republicans were the ones that invented gun grabs in the U.S. They started out, um, you know, disarming the American Indians. Uh, Benjamin Harrison uh, decided that the Indians were a threat because they, not because, you know, the U.S. had been actively attacking them for about 15 years, not because of that, but because, uh, because all these Indians had guns. They're out there on the plains. They're out there, you know, in the mountains of the Dakotas. They're out there, you know, and they have guns. That's terrible. Well, you know, if you live out in the mountains of Dakotas, you probably ought to have a gun. But William, I'm sorry, Benjamin Harrison, well, grandson of William Henry Harrison, but Benjamin Harrison was president at the time, and he decided that those evil Indians, those simple Indians, those childlike Indians that, you know, the government can't trust them with guns. So they literally went out and began disarming the Indians. And if you read about, this is not going to be taught in school, but if you read about the, the massacre at Wounded Knee, the whole purpose of the cavalry going there to that settlement of Indians was to disarm them. And, and they explained to the Indians as they disarmed them, we're doing this for your own safety. If you have these guns, you're going to be uh, in danger because people are going to be afraid of you and you might get attacked. But if we take your guns away, then we know you'll be safe. We know you're not going to attack us if we take away your guns. And so you'll be safer if you give up your guns. So the Indians at Wounded Knee gave up their guns. And as soon as the guns were secure, the 7th Cavalry slaughtered them. Man, woman, child. Invalid, old, young, slaughtered them. And one of the things that they did in that, the uh, the Cavalry had a new gun called a Hodgkin's gun, which uh, fired, um, um, which fired uh, projectiles that would um, uh, fragment in the air. And so uh, this anti-personnel weaponry. So the, this new Hodgkin gun could multi, could could rapid fire, and it would and it fired projectiles that would uh, that would fragment. And so they, you know, the army wasn't all that um, uh, accustomed to using a weapon like this, and they ended up killing a bunch of their own troops with you know with these Hodgkin guns. But the but the gun would fire in and fragment, and the shell would fragment, and chunks of it would fly in every direction and hit. You know, it's, it hits randomly in every direction, so you can't really control who you're killing when you when you use fragmentary uh, weapons like that. And so the inexperienced army using this new weapon ended up killing a bunch of their own guys. Well, of course, you know, after they leave, the dead Indians just scattered around on the plain. They pick up all the army personnel that are left alive. Uh, I'm sorry, that are dead and, and, the, and the wounded and so forth. And they come out of there and they get back to Washington, D.C. And lo and behold, they get the, uh, the Medal of Honor for their, uh, for their bravery. Their bravery in killing unarmed 
Indian women and children and fragging their own guys. They got the Medal of Honor for that. Thank you, Benjamin Harrison. Now, Benjamin Harrison, I just wanted to mention, Benjamin Harrison learned this brutality while serving under William Tecumseh Sherman during the Atlanta campaign. So uh, Benjamin Harrison was, um, he was big on, uh, uh, he was a big spender. He wanted more government, bigger government, higher taxes, high tariffs. He, uh, he, he supported the corporations in their attacking the trusts. The trusts were, were companies, essentially, that were in competition with corporations. They were structured slightly different. And because they had a more efficient structure, they, they were uh, more competitive in the workplace than the corporations that had the government blessing. And so the, uh, the trusts were, were beating out the, the corporations in the marketplace. So Benjamin Harrison uh, was the president when they first began with the so-called trust-busting activities. So, um, so Benjamin Harrison brutally crushed the will of the American Indians. Now, he used the ghost dance as an excuse for this gun control. Um, the, I'm not, I don't have time to really go into the ghost dance, but, um, but it was a, basically a religious movement that was sweeping through several different Plains Indian tribes. And, um, and Benjamin Harrison used this excuse, this, uh, you know, this emergency. It's an emergency. Oh, the, the Indians are on the rise. They're out there dancing in a weird circle and, and talking about ghosts. And, ooh, we have an emergency. It's time to go kill them all. And that was his excuse for going and disarming the Indians and this brutal rounding up of the Indians. And uh, especially with, you know, uh, it's pretty well known what he did with the Lakota and Wounded Knee. It's not as well known of how he brutalized the um, the Shoshone in, uh, in Utah and, and Nevada and that area. But um, but that but that was the excuse he used. He he used the the um, the ghost dance as his ex- as his excuse to disarm the Indians and round them up, and then um, uh, you know the 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 reservation uh, process was already going on when Benjamin Harris came in, but he uh, he furthered that. Now I got to break again for a commercial. When I get back from this, uh, uh, we'll take back off on this. Stick with me. I'll be right back. Did you know author Taryn P. Lupo has a new novel out called One Nation Under Blood? When a rejuvenative blood technology is developed that pits the young against the old, the government must take firm steps to address the war of supply and demand brewing across generational lines. Blood is not the only thing bought and sold in this dystopian tale of technology, economics, and independence. Vampires are now very real, but we never expected them to wear our grandmother's best Sunday dress. BadQuaker.com uses HostGator as our web hosting service. It was fast and easy to get set up, and the support we receive is top-notch. They have helpful and friendly 24-7, 365 live technical support and a 99.9% uptime guarantee, and they have some of the best prices in the business. If you have a website, or if you want to have a website, check them out by going to BadQuaker.com and click on the button for HostGator. And thank you very much for supporting BadQuaker.com. Okay, so I was talking about this slow cultural shift on guns. 
and uh, and the Republicans are in on it. Not only are the Republicans in on it, but the Republicans have had an active role in the gun grabs and in the in the movement towards disarming America. Now, I, before the break, I was talking about disarming the Indians, and I want to touch just one last thing on that before I move on. I want you to think about how many times that Hollywood has shown in movies and television shows and so forth, how many times Hollywood has shown evil men selling guns and liquor to these stereotype childlike Indians. You know, these, these Indians that they show in the movies um, that, uh, you know, they, they seem to be fairly normal until you hand them a rifle and a, and a jug of whiskey, and then all of a sudden they just completely lose it. Well... You know, um, do uh, we're really taught to believe this cartoonish version of Indians? But you know, first off, humans are not like that. Humans don't fit these Hollywood stereotyping, cartoonish molds. But they want you to think that they do. Well, at the same time, as essentially, you know, the the Indian situation has been disarmed. Generations of Indians have been taught to be uh, to be entirely dependent upon the government, and so now, you know, the government looks at them as no longer a problem. Uh, the government f- provides for them their food, their housing. Uh, they don't even have to put fences around the uh, around the uh, reservations. They keep them on there through the dependency. How tragic is that? Think about, you know, if Hitler could have had that kind of time frame to work with so that he could have, uh, you know, they only started mass exterminating the Jews when Hitler ran out of time. But think of Hitler, if he had had, say, 150, 200 years to bring about the changes that he was trying to bring about. Because really it's the same thing. You make them completely dependent upon the government and then you exterminate the ones who are inconvenient. Well, whether you're doing that within a 20-year time frame, actually with Hitler it was more like a 10-year time frame, or whether you're doing this generationally over hundreds of years, it's still the same process. And that's that's what has been done to the American Indians. And now the same kind of demonization is taking place against gun owners in America. But it's happening very slowly, very carefully, one generation at a time. Gun owners are more and more. um, If you go back into the 30s, 40s, and 50s movies, you'll see that gun ownership was a standard thing. Everybody owned guns. It was not unusual at all to have a gun in your glove box of, of many people's cars. My grandfather, um, you know, I've talked about him before. My grandfather, his whole life, carried a, a little thirty-two pistol just in his trousers, just in his trouser pocket. And, um, and it wasn't even a thing that a person thought about. He wasn't a violent man. He wasn't the kind of a person to get in fights or anything like that. It was just what people did. Well, now you have to have a permission slip to do that. And in some states, you can't even do it with a permission slip. And that's where we've gotten to. But we've gotten there generationally. And that's what's happening now. They're not going to just come out and start rounding up people and taking their guns. And They're going to do this generationally. They're going to do it exactly like they said. Uh, they're going to they're demonize guns the same way that smoking has been generationally taken away. So is this some kind of conspiracy? You know, we see Republicans, uh, Ronald Reagan... In California, um, there was a problem of the police were not protecting 
black families in inner city neighborhoods and crime was getting out of control in inner city neighborhoods. So there was a need to do something about it. So vigilante groups like the Black Panthers and others stepped into the gap and began literally patrolling their own streets with shotguns. Now this so terrified uh, certain racist white politicians in uh, Sacramento, California, that they decided to pass a, a ban on carrying a loaded weapon. Okay, and this was in California in the late 60s. And, uh, and there was a lot of upset about this. But do you know who was, su- who was supporting this? The NRA supported this. And you know who signed the bill into law when it finally went through? Governor Ronald Reagan. And the whole purpose in it was to disarm black families who were trying to keep their neighborhoods safe because literally police forces were not going in and helping them. You had the, the um, this was uh, right in the time when there was a lot of uh, civil unrest in the inner cities. And right in the middle of that time, they were, the, the city governments were pulling back their police for- forces out of the inner cities and just leaving the criminals to run their, uh, their operations. And so when the, the individual citizens started to do something about this, the government in California came in and stopped their ability to police themselves and stopped their ability to protect themselves. And it was entirely a racist move, and it was backed by Ronald Reagan, the Republican governor of California, and the NRA. Now, that's all easily checked up on. You can find that. It's, it's not any kind of crazy conspiracy stuff. But now, so speaking of conspiracy, so is it a conspiracy if the left and the right, if the Republicans and the Democrats are working together on something like this? Well, do we really believe that Republicans and Democrats could run the government and not conspire together? Do you, you know, we, we, they talk all the time about we have to have a bipartisan blah, 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 bipartisan this and a bipartisan that. Isn't that what a conspiracy is? Isn't it isn't a conspiracy when people get together and they formulate a plan so that their will can be done? Isn't that what a conspiracy is? So if you believe in a world where there's no conspiracies, you're believing in a fantasy world. People have a tendency to work together. They get this is what the division of labor division of labor is about. People work together and when they work together they get more accomplished than when they work apart. So if we understand this when we're talking about a factory where they're making wagon wheels, then why would we not understand this when we're talking about a factory that makes law for a living? If you believe that the division of labor works in, uh, you know, in apple production, then why wouldn't it work in government? Of course it does. Of course the division of labor works. And part of the division of labor is, um, is people getting together and planning out stuff and doing stuff. Well, that's what a conspiracy is. So, uh, so when Republicans and Democrats get together and conspire, and, and one group says, look, um, how about if we set aside this abortion issue for this term, and we're going to do this with the, uh, with the gun control issue, and then the next term we'll let you guys do that with the abortion issue, and we'll do this with the gun control issue. And they swap these things off. And they use these hot-button issues 
uh, as leverage so that they can get more money into their district for this or they can get a special, um, uh, you know, some kind of special program to support some special uh, business interest over here in their in their uh, district or whatever. And all these things work together, not not as some kind of crazy conspiracy to take over the world, but it's how things like this work when you get politicians together. They compromise on things, and they and they work towards a longer goal. And part of this, you know, Hop, uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe, in his um, uh, Democracy That Failed, he talks about the difference between a caretaker government and an ownership government. And this is one of the points that some people really get confused on. You know, uh, back in the days when there was a king and when the kingdom was, um, was handed down from, uh, from you know, a parent to, the, to their offspring and it went from, you know, to the, to the daughter or to the son and, and, the, and the kingdom and all the kingdom was handed down generationally. There was a certain level, and, and you have good kings and bad kings and all that. That's not really the point. But there was a certain level of ownership in the kingdom. So there was an investment there. The king had an, uh, a, he had a motivation to take care of his investment, and he had a motivation to pass it down to his child. And he had a motivation to increase his kingdom and increase the value of his, of his kingdom because he's going to have it his whole life. So he had this motivation in it. Now, when you take that away and you have caretaker government where the guy knows he's only going to be in government for a few years and he's going to be out. So all he really has to worry about, and even if it's his whole life, even if it's like one of these guys like Ted Kennedy who spends his whole life in government, he realizes that when he leaves, he takes nothing with him. Whether he spent one term in office or whether he spent his whole life in office, when he leaves government, he takes nothing with him. So therefore, he must get as much as possible during the time frame that he has. So he can't think long term. Uh, I did one article on this where I talked about, uh, oh no, I stole that from, from Hans Hermann Hoppe. I better give him credit for it. Okay, so we have two landlords. One landlord, uh, both landlords are given identical pieces of property. And so here, you have this, uh, you have this apartment building, uh, two identical apartment buildings. One's given to uh, you know, person A and one's given to person B. Now, person A is told, you take care of this apartment building. At the end of 20 years, you own it. The other person is told, you take care of this apartment building however you want. You, both of you guys can do anything you want with these apartments. So long During this 20 years, you can do anything you want with these apartments. Person A, at the end of the 20 years, you own the apartments. Person B, at the end of the 20 years, you are out of a job and you don't own the apartments anymore. Now, the motivation is there for person A to take care of the investment so that he will have it in the long run and so that he will pass it down, pass down something of value to his children or have it as a legacy or have it so that he can sell it and retire or whatever. He has a motivation to take care of it. Person B has no motivation to take care of it. They have entirely a motivation to sack it, to take as much out of it as they can within the time frame that they're given. And when they're done, leave it with as little value left in it as possible because they have taken all that value. And that's what a democratic government does. It puts caretakers in charge of government that have no long-term interest in that government. And so always, in all cases, a democratic government will be more oppressive and will be more harmful and more wasteful 
than a uh, you know than a than a monarchy. Now, that's not to say a monarchy is good. A monarchy is a horrible, oppressive thing. All governments are, um, but what we have now is worse than what we used to have back in the days of when there were monarchs. Because of this principle that Hoppe has shown us, because of this lack of ownership in government, it it, it motivate it provides incentives for the people in government to do more looting than they would if they were passing their reins of government on to another generation. So, of course, the Democrats and the Republicans will conspire together to get what they want short term. So where does this long-term movement towards, uh, you know, towards gun grabbing and where's this progressive long-term uh, come from? Well, that goes back to the actual myth of the state, the religion of the state. If you believe, if you honestly believe in your heart that it's a good idea for one group of humans to dominate all the other humans, for this one little group of humans to live off the labor of all the other humans, and this one little group of humans to make the important decisions for all those other humans. If you really believe that, you really believe the religion of the state, if you're sold on it, and if you're bright enough to sit down and evaluate this and say, okay, well, if this is what I believe is good, then let's take this process out further. If you do that, then you will come to the conclusion that um, that 100 states are better than 150, 100 governments, I should say, are better than uh, 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 150 governments are better than 100 governments, and 50 governments are better than 100 governments, uh, because the more governments there are, the more clashing there's going to be, and there's the more they're not going to agree with each other on things. And if you bring this process down, if um, if 10, if you're down to 10 governments, you still have 10 governments that can have war with each other. But if you only have five governments, you have less opportunity for war between these governments. And if you get it all the way down to where there's three governments, then um, then there's far less opportunity for war between these governments. And there's far less conflict between these governments than there was when there was a hundred. Well, carried out logically, if you can get to the point where there's one government then you eliminate war. You eliminate uh, all of the problems that go with all these governments clashing constantly. You see, if you believe the myth of the state, if you believe the religion of the state, and if you're bright enough to follow it through to its logical end, you have to accept that one world government is better than multi-governments. And so... And so if you're this bright and you can figure this out and you can follow this thing through to the end, then you can say in your mind, at least in theory, it would be better for us to work towards a one world government than not for all of humanity. And this becomes your investment in the future to work towards this one world government. Now, you may not you may you may realize that a lot, especially in America, a lot of people are going to be opposed to this. They're not going to want this to happen because they want their own individuality. And this individuality, uh, you know, echoes out into saying, uh, you know, my team, my city, my county, my state, my country, all this, um, all those things are, are, are burdens upon the progressive. He wants to eliminate those things so that, so that you can accept, uh, this whole one world thing because they already believe that one government is better than two. So he has this long-term motivation, but 
in addition to that long-term motivation, he has his own uh, selfish desire to fill his pockets now. So these two things working hand in hand, this desire to fill his pockets now and loot as much as he can loot from government during his tenure, and this long-term goal of what he believes to be making the world better by moving towards a one-world government. Well, how do you do that? Well, the first thing you have to do is get the guns out of all these cra- out of the hands of all these crazy Americans. Now they they were able to do that in Australia, they were able to do that in England, but you're dealing with a really different mentality when you come into the United States and you start to try to do that. It's not hard in the cities. There's a very different mentality in the cities than there is out in the country. But when you get out into rural, rural America, you have a, a very unique mind. You have something that is not going to be found in the cities. And those people are not going to just lay down their guns um, or turn them in under request. You have to do this gradually over a long period of time. And that's why I say, you know, they, these things are generational. We talk about the collapse of the United States government. That could happen. That could happen fairly quickly. I don't think it will happen for at least 10, 15, 20, maybe 30 years, maybe longer than that. But uh, but it will eventually happen. Um, it'll go into a slow decline. It's already in a slow decline. We're watching this government die right around us right now. And it'll it will continue, but this drive towards the, the the worship of the state, this drive towards the greater God of statism, this is uh, it, it's it's going to supersede the life of the U.S. government. I've probably rambled on on that more than I need to anyway. So, um, you know, let me I, before I before I cut off today, I, I just want to throw in uh, sort of a little update. Uh, my wife and I, I mentioned this earlier, but my wife and I started out um, back last December. We got in the motor home and we headed south out of Ohio to try to outrun the, the winter cold and the winter storms and so forth. And we've had a lot of fun moving around through the south, going you know, from one campground to the other. I, I, we haven't had the kind of internet coverage that we were hoping for, so I haven't got out the kind of uh, consistent podcasts that I would have liked to have. But I hope you can be patient with me, and we'll we'll continue to do the best we can in that area. Eventually, we're going to stay on the road. This is our plan, anyway, to stay on the road until um, the end of February. We're going to try to be in New Hampshire to the uh, Liberty Forum in New Hampshire. And uh, I've been invited there as a speaker. And then we're going to try to get back to Ohio at some point and maybe eventually uh, come on the road full time with uh, with the Bad Quaker podcast and moving from place to place, uh, maybe even doing local get togethers and local, uh, you know, uh, local events with listeners and things like that and just moving from place to place in the motorhome. Uh, and one last thing before I let you go. Um, if you're planning on going to the New Hampshire Porcupine Festival this year, if that's on, in your plans, um, there was in Facebook, there was a sort of a straw poll uh, asking who the people wanted to see at Porkfest in 2013, who they wanted to see there as a speaker. And I, I really got surprised at the results. I came in number seventh in the list. Uh, I was beat by Penn Jillette, Ron Paul, Stefan Molyneux, Tom Woods, uh, Andrew Napolitano, and Jeffrey Tucker, and I came in number seventh. 
And I was really pretty amazed at that. The reason I'm bringing it up is um, if you're a listener and if you like uh, you know, what you hear from me and if you're going to Porkfest, if you're not going to Porkfest, you, you probably shouldn't interfere with their, with their processes and so forth. But if you are planning on going to Porkfest and if you would like to hear me speak there, um, go over to uh, to their website to the Pork, uh, to um, uh, the Free State Projects website, and I'll put a link on today's show notes for that. Go over to the Free State Projects website and uh, look around and drop uh, drop them a note, uh, communicate with them, or go over to Facebook. Uh, their the Porcupine Festival uh, has the Pork Fest has their own Facebook page. If you if you search Pork Fest in Facebook. And let them know that you're going to attend, and let them know that you'd like to hear me, if if that's the case, if you'd like to hear me. And uh, as I wrap this up, I want to thank you for listening today, and I want you to remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. And I want to remind you that we do have the forum, and it's uh, it's slowly growing. And I haven't spent the kind of time there that I'd like to, but as we get things sorted out, I plan to spend more time on the forum uh, chatting with people. Thank you very much for listening today, folks, and be sure and check with us uh, again for the next episode. Bye.